Hey everybody, this is Rue, and this is episode four of Fungibility. Well, another great week. We have a little bit of a different slant on the show this week. As some of you know, my background is in the cloud computing space, so I'm a bit of a technologist. So I thought I'd change it up a little bit this week and invite a colleague of mine I've known for probably a good 10 plus years in the cloud computing world to discuss some of the technology around edge computing and some of the concepts driving some of the sort of technical infrastructure found in blockchain and NFTs and related tech. So I'm excited to have this conversation. For those who are not necessarily as technically minded as me, and you're hopefully in for a treat to learn something a little new and a little bit more philosophical. Well, hey, Mark, good, good to see you. Hey, Ruben. Good to see you too, man. It's been way too long. Yeah, it's, it totally has. It's, it's nice to be able to do a, a, a podcast episode on a subject that I know a, a, a quite a bit about, and I know you as well know extensively a lot in the cloud computing space so now we're, we get to kind of combine the 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 two best things some blockchain nft and cloud computing all together to create something new and exciting for uh, i think a lot of the listeners at least on my side who probably don't have a lot of experience in the cloud world well same thing i mean we we talk more uh, you know on the on on our podcast and in my discussions we probably talk uh, more heavily around edge and cloud and even data centers and uh, more and more of our listeners and and uh, people we interact with are interested in in blockchain and crypto in general. So I'm uh, kind of excited about the idea of merging the two topics and see, seeing what we come up with. Well, it's a, it's certainly an exciting topic, and it's funny when when I set out to create this company, Award Pool. You know, I didn't realize how much you know my cloud computing background would would come in handy because it seems like every day I'm I'm having discussions on scaling and and the limitations of blockchain and how to get around them with queuing and all you know lambda event architectures and all kinds of you know things that you know you picked up along the way but didn't realize you needed to use for a somewhat unrelated startup. Yeah, it's it's um. You know, it's it's odd, but I mean, the same thing sort of happened with Edgevana. Our original goal was to, um, you know, simplify global access to resources, thinking along the lines of traditional um, efforts for somebody needing data centers in multiple cities or multiple countries, or somebody needing a new global network, and, and maybe even um, the early days of people beginning to deploy uh, their own infrastructure for edge computing. But what we're finding uh, is that, the blockchain space uh, has uh, similar issues for, as edge computing for, for many of the blockchain slash crypto players, but um, not for the exact same reasons as you might normally assume for edge computing. So distribution, latency, um, decentralization, et cetera, are all key components of, of, of the uh, discussions we're having with uh, some of our our current customers and some of our prospective customers as well. Well, you know, the interesting about blockchain in general is, you know, at first appearance, it's a kind of edgeless abstraction of, of data, right? It's, it's kind of a, a data, a distributed database that exists without any particular location. And, you know, in some ways it's a really slow <laughs> edgeless database. So where's the sort of, you know, inflection point for, you know, what you're describing as kind of where, where location matters in a, in a world where there isn't any particular location. Right. And, and it's a good question. I mean, I, I wish I could say I'm an expert. Uh, I'm learning on a daily basis, trying to read almost every article I see on the subject matter. 
But, you know, some of the things we've learned over the last couple of months um, as we, you know, contracted and began rolling out for the customer we have now and are looking at uh, a couple of prospective customers in the space is that um, they're worried about things that uh, are similar to concerns we might have had in days gone by relative to infrastructure, but are um, are called different things. So centralization is an example. Uh, many b- blockchain companies or crypto companies have a basic centralization, not on purpose, but by accident through people all buying resource on their network via a particular cloud uh, provider, as an example. And so there's centralization in, in both location and in supplier, which is a potential risk um, and potential performance headache. Uh, and allow doesn't allow for as much, um, uh, what's the word, um, protection against uh, um, censorship, et cetera. So, uh, you know, the way we're deploying right now, we're helping to actually mitigate risk associated with censorship, but also improve transaction time and in, increase um, trust in the network by providing um, dozens of access points around the world that uh, offer unique characteristics for everything from an ASN location to a data center address to a different city or country. That's interesting. And I can see how that would, would make a lot of sense in a proof of work orientation where yeah. you're, you're using sort of computationally heavy algorithms that are distributed across, you know, various machines and, and locations. You know, now when it comes to a proof of stake, you know, orientation, obviously compute remains important, but the stake in essence is, is the item rather than the algo or the compute you know, that determines the, the reward or the consensus, depending on how you want to describe it. And, you know, so what, what I'm, I find interesting is, is this sort of, there's been a number of projects that have popped up over the last couple of years that have sort of focused on this kind of proof of work, but rather than proof of work based on the, uh, the concepts of, you know, just computing power, more on like who and where and what that compute, that, that compute is, right? And which is similar to like a, I don't know, like a commodity exchange of computing resource rather than a blind movement of, of an algorithm that says I'm going to be the most powerful computer in, in the network. So I find I find lots of interesting things. Now the edge aspect adds a whole new sort of tangent, and that's what I'm trying to get my my head around here. Is you know how does that play into this kind of new proof of stake world that we're moving into? Yeah, and and you know I actually was thinking of um of of playing the dumb one more on that answer because I'm certain that you have a better idea about it than I do, but um. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested and enthusiastic uh, about the notion of being able to leverage um, what might be considered a standard edge strategy for global distribution, um, reduced risk of any particular location, better latency, better data protection uh, by country or, you know, compliance or so- sovereignty, and how building for that might play into supporting um, blockchain, at least uh, as you describe it. Um, uh, almost by accident. Does that make any yeah. sense? Yeah. And, and the first thing that comes to mind for me is IPFS. And if you're not familiar with what IPFS is, it's the interplanetary file system. Yeah. And in, in the world of NFTs, it's the kind of underlying distributed file system. It's Think of it almost like a sort of blockchain-based S3. And essentially, it's immutable, meaning that once you put your data into this particular simple file system, it's uneditable. 
which is a double-edged sword. It's un- in the fact that it's an immutable is all the things that, you know, decentralized advocates want. They want something that that's there and there essentially forever. And anyone contributing to that, you know, plays a role in keeping that network up and running. So as long as it's, there's enough contributors to it, it exists. And if you're buying an NFT today, essentially almost all those exist in terms of the image or video asset or the metadata asset exists in the form of an IPFS record or hash. Now, the reason I bring that up in correlation to what you just described as edge is I think it's interesting because when you look at the delivery of assets, you know, things that are actually visual in nature, like imagery and video, location matters, latency matters. You, right. you're saving... You're, you're serving up a video file from, you know, Mexico and, and you're in China. That could be problematic just because, you know, the speed of light is an insurmountable problem when it comes to, to delivery of, of, uh, you know, these types of assets. So now adding a kind of component that allows you to de- determine location alongside, you know, an IPFS becomes really interesting. Because it, what it does, it gives you all the things that I, I believe you'd want in a de- decentralized network. You know, it, there is no central authority. You know, the, the, those who have the largest stake, or, you know, get to decide the reward and all the things that you want in a, in a true consensus sort of algo. But you also potentially have the ability to choose based on location or maybe avoid based on location. Maybe you don't want your data to show up in China. I don't know. It's just, but I think that the edge aspect in my opinion, or the geo-specific aspects, is something that a lot of these systems haven't really done a particularly good job of addressing. Right. So, you know, it's been a it's been a problem for a long time, and even a, you know, uh, you know, I know both of us have been playing in the cloud space for a long time, um, and and as long as it's been for me, you were ahead of me by three or four years. Um, uh, at least in 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 really building and, and attempting to deploy something, um, one of the problems that that many in the industry are still f- struggling with, and we were struggling with, but had a you know kind of a rudimentary solution for even at Service Mesh uh, with Eric Poulier back in 2010 2011, were were things like data sovereignty. Um, you know, how much does that play into you know the capabilities of a blockchain network or you know smart contracts? Uh, or the future of um, of making almost everything. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, multi-tenant and shareable. Well, I think you get that in, inherently of the blockchain. One, it's transparent. Okay. Uh, you know, it, the, unlike uh, you know some of the cloud infrastructures you'd see from some of the big providers, you know, the, most of that data is obscured unless you mis- you know explicitly make it available or forget to you know secure it. Anyone that's ever run an early S3 instance will will tell you about mistakenly leaving it open. Now, the 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 key difference when it comes to blockchains, in particular, sort of blockchain-based storage like an IPFS, a Filecoin, and others, is you know you're now working in the context of something that is natively you know visible by all that know where to look, right? So if you want to you know obscure something, you know create something that that is you know, obfuscated on purpose, you now have to use secondary means to, to obfuscate that data. Now, for the most part, that obfuscation can happen based on ownership. I am the holder of something, a token, for instance, an NFT or, or whatnot. And therefore, I, I explicitly have 
you know, rights associated with being the holder of something, which then in turn could, could grant me the, the ability to see, right? If it's um, an, an encrypted element, which I'm using with, say, a 256-bit based encryption, I, I could then have a smart contract, hypothetically, unencrypt that just for that particular user. Now, the issue again, back to, you know, blockchains, is the smart contract itself is, you know, visible by all, including all the data that exists within it. So you're, you're co- constantly working against a kind of radical transparency, right? So the idea of sovereignty is different because it's inverse. You know, you're not, you know, you're not working in someone else's cloud. You're kind of working in the cloud. Like it's like everybody gets the ability to see things equally. And then you're working out ways to hide it. And that, that's, I think, why you, you keep seeing these $100 million hacks every day. It's because of that radical transparency. One minor slip up and, uh, you know, the whole world sees it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what do you see as, as kind of a, a long term? You know, I think about this and I think about, you know, the, the long term ramifications of, of what we're building and, and, and how effectively they'll be used. So, you know, I think about what you just said. And, uh, you know, we're looking at the future of smart ca- contracts and how they can be applied to the, um, the services and products that we would be selling or, uh, helping other people's, bu- other people buy. And, um, uh, you know, we, we just talked about data sovereignty. Uh, if you're putting data, um, that would be considered sovereign in the sense that it's, uh, you know, personal data and it's, and it was created in France as an example. Um, and, and they don't like it beyond their borders. Um, are there any circumstances where that doesn't apply? I mean, if you're putting it on blockchain and the only person that could read it are the people that have explicitly been given, been given access to it, does that change the, the dynamic from a, um, from a legal standpoint? Well, you're, 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 there's two, you know, predominant things here, I think that are working in sort of tandem to one another. You know, one, you know, there, there's this idea of, again, radi- radical transparency and, and anonymity, right? Those are the two sort of driving pillars of the blockchain world. You know, there's a kind of level of independence from supposed sovereign nation states. And if you've ever looked at some of the debates happening around regulations, you can see it manifest itself in those in that kind of tug of war between, you know, these nation states that want to control their, their monetary policies and those who believe that monetary policy should exist outside of a single nation state, right? That's the, the, the crux of, of the sort of debate you see. Now, and yeah. in, in when it comes to data, that, that's, that's taking that same level of uh, debate and now applying it to your personal information. Now, in my opinion, there's a couple things you need to look at when you, when you think about your personal information. You know, one, does your personal information have value? And I think most people would say that my personal information has value, right? And then two, you know, who gets to control access to that and by what means do they have access to it? And, and the, the reality is we've lived in, we've lived probably the last 20 years in, in a world where most of our pers- personal information isn't actually owned by us, the people whose personal information it is. It's actually been owned by those who are able to aggregate it and understand it and then resell it, whether it was a credit bureau, a government tax organization, a social network, or or what else, or other various things, right? So we were essentially the product of those those things. 
Now, in the blockchain world, I think that we are at a unique inflection point that allows sort of the the you know people, regular people, to now take back control of the these things, whether it's monetary or personal data related activities, and define how, where, when those things get utilized, by whom they get utilized, and if there is value, maybe recouping some of that value through things like tokenization, where if someone's using my data, I now have the right to get some of the money for it at the very least, or say no, or have at least the ability to see where and how it's being used. And I think that a lot of the drivers of blockchain revolve around those sort of three key pillars, value, access, and control. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, when you think about uh, all of those um, intertwined um, and, and sometimes, you know, to the layman or at casual observer, almost conflicting, um, you know, transparency versus protection, um, how, do you, how, do, how would you describe um, the opportunities associated with um, the smart contracts and, and um, uh, uh, blockchain in general? relative to edge deployment. You know, from my from my perspective, I'm I'm seeing a number of different use case models that are being deployed. Uh, and most of them, um, I mean they're really kind of across the board right now, but if I had to say um, you know, from a simple majority standpoint, most of them are fairly low impact to any one individual and um, and high volume. Is there a play for that? In the you know in 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 blockchain to for not only maybe for uh, um, for human authentication maybe for um, uh, you know billings and payments maybe for you know moving some things that would have otherwise been as you described around your own personal data um, maybe you know it's either you buy it or somebody pays for it or it doesn't happen where instead there may be tokens or some other value that's created. Yeah, putting on my cloud computing hat circa like 10 years ago, I, yeah. you know, and, and looking to where we are today, you know, one of the interesting things that, that has appeared over the last, really in the last year or so, to be honest, it, it appeared before that, but it's something called a DAO, uh, distributed, you know, autonomous organization. Right. And DAOs are particularly, you know, fascinating to me because, you know, they, they're, you know, distributed and they're autonomous. And the, the, autonomy, the autonomy found in these things, you know, in, in what you're describing and what we sort of grew up in, in the cloud world looking at is, is interesting for a, a number of reasons. So let's look at like the relationship of peering between networks, right? Those relationships for the most part are, are still a manual, tedious, and legal based agreement between organizations, right? I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you sort of use my, my wires for the most simple basic and let, to let you, your users come and, and use it through X price. Now in a DAO, you can define, you can through a smart contract, what and how those agreements work, not from a, a contractual obligation, but from a functional point of view and then, and then provide sort of the value. I'm, you know, certain amount of my users are flowing through your, your network and therefore I'm obligated to give you something. And that those sort of things now become autonomous. You know, it's, it's a binary option. Either they're on my network or your users are on my network or they're not. And if they are, then there's obligations based on it. Right. And so what we're seeing with the form of DAOs is we're moving from a world that was re required these sort of legal arrangements 
for things that to happen. And then the, the worst part was the enforcement of those legal arrangements required litigation for the most part if you didn't agree with it. In a, in a DAO based or smart contract based world, there is no litigation. You know, that's all based on, you know, the, the things that happen, the amount of uh, stake you have in those things that happen, traffic, tokens, value that's created and shared. And then if there is a dispute, there are, you know, th- the same tokens that you got for, for participating in that, you know, smart contract or DAO based environment are the things that handle the disputes itself. So, Therefore, you, you're in a position to have truly autonomous organizations. And those aren't just, you know, LLCs. Those are like actual things that actually operate. And you're seeing that pop up in a multitude of different industries like gaming, for example, this idea of gaming guilds, where I had a conversation last week with a, with a, a group that were looking at creating these kind of groups of collected individuals who are all playing video games and, and they're getting value from those video games. And the value of those video games on a sort of coalition of sorts were fed into this distributed organization, which creates tokens that could be traded and turned into U.S. dollars. And then those U.S. dollars are essentially paying for people's uh, scholarships to go to university in emerging co- in economies. And that's all autonomous. There's no LLC. There's no nonprofit. It just is. And that's what's that's what's exciting about this industry is it's creating new ways of collaboration, value creation. And it doesn't require all these sort of heavy legal sort of regulatory frameworks. Yeah, it seems to 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 really take the shackles off the potential opportunities. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to try and describe what you were first uh, um, building when you were attempting to build Anomaly, um, you know, before the days of, of um, when people could actually spell cloud. And, you know, are we getting now to the point where, because, um, I mean, it's really kind of what I've been describing as our need going forward is sort of an advanced representation of what you were trying to create. Are we getting to that point where we can have, um, you know, a shared value network of resources that can be uh, pooled and used uh, wherever they happen to be for whatever workload they happen to be required for at a moment's notice without having these long winded contracts, without having to say, that I'm defining this edge workload to work on this specific infrastructure in these specific 100 locations. Instead, I deploy my workload um, effectively to um, a general uh, um, access, internet access or internet uh, or edge access point that allows for the the distribution of my workload based on, um, you know, shared value based on, um, uh, uh, direction by either policy. I would I would say we have to get past policy based on AI parameters of workload performance, um, uh, any compliance or governance, et cetera. I mean, I'm 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 putting a lot of wind into this um, this problem I'm trying to describe. But do you see that we're getting to that point to where we could actually um, more effectively utilize the world's infrastructure to solve these problems without having Every time somebody builds something, they have to assume that they're going to have to build something new and deploy it everywhere. No, 100%. You know, I think the first generation of cloud computing is pretty clearly defined by the largest organizations on the planet. Let's be honest. The the big three are just so happen to be the biggest tech firms, right? right. And and that's that's purposeful and and probably was needed because it was 
you know, financially, you know, it required that level of financial investment to make those things happen. Now, when you look at like Ethereum, which is essentially it's a it's a decentralized cloud infrastructure. Let's be honest. The EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, it may not operate in the context of like a monolithic sort of you know virtual machine like you might find on EC2, but it certainly does operate in a sort of event orientated you know architecture that allows it to be distributed across a multitude of, of various machines around the globe. It doesn't take the, con- the concept of location into play so much. But it does certainly allow for the sort of first steps towards an environment that is truly independent of any particular company. And in the logical next steps, in my opinion, of that particular infrastructure and probably many, you know, Ethereum clones will be to start looking at things that are more computationally heavy. Right. Right now, a Solidity contract is is a kind of fancy if then else kind of program. Right. It's. With the ability to, to define units of value based on certain things. Now, the next logical step, and you're seeing that with, again, back to like IPFS and other sort of non, you know, EVM style blockchains that are popping up is doing more valuable explicit things in, in that workflow beyond just a, a series of if statements. And if I was to look out 10, 20 years from now, I would say the next big, you know, sort of evolution in the cloud world will be a truly decentralized version of the Amazon cloud. And if if we go back to what I think myself and others who were sort of envisioning cloud computing circa like 2003, when I sort of set forth some of my ideas around infrastructure as a service, it wasn't to, to have a central large behemoth cloud provider. It was the idea that anyone could could sort of gain access to compute resources if and when they needed it, anywhere they needed it at at any time at the best cost. And it turned out what we were really doing was building the next Hotel California, you know, and and that's always been sort of the the limiting factor of, of some of these cloud providers. So if I was looking to reimagine the cloud world today, I would one, I would create a, a, a truly autonomous organization at its center, replace Amazon with a DAO. Then I would start, you know, you know, providing the ability for a reward for access to that resource based on, you know, the a consensus and reward system that actually applies specifically to the resources based on compute, network access, and the actual location. Now you start putting all those things together, you you don't have a bunch of dumb Bitcoin miners that are chugging away doing nothing for no real reason other than to prove they're the most powerful computer in in the blockchain. You've got computers that are actually creating real value for real companies and organizations in a way that's independent of any central organization. And I think that 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 changes the the whole entire sort of idea of of why and what a cloud needs to do. And then lastly, you know, the, the missing link to, me, to really make this happen has always been network connectivity, right? One of the reasons why, you know, you, you know, the biggest cloud providers do as well as they do is they've bought up all the dark fiber and all the interconnects and, and all the networks because that's the, that's the part that most people don't have access to. So my hope is with the emergence of some of these things like 5G and other sort of, you know, massive bandwidth, that the average individual can now gain access to, it'll democratize that last mile. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 
I'm kind of hoping, um, well, hoping and, and, and maybe witnessing that that's happening, uh, whether people want it to or not, right? Because the, the design of the network being as it is, um, most network access points around the world, and some places have fixed this, but most around the world are still asynchronous. For instance, I've got a gig link to my house, which actually equates to a little bit under 800 um, uh, megabits down. And um, I had to buy that so that I could get 30 plus megabits up. Yep. So a gig link so I could get 30 megabits, right? Sometimes 35 megabits. Um, so you think about where the big pipes will begin now. And the fact that they'll begin on devices, they'll begin on cameras, they'll begin on phones, they'll begin on um, sensors, on shop floors, et cetera, and be, uh, you know, coalesced and sent up other bigger pipes to more central locations in a region or in a, in a city or in a, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a manufacturing um, uh, environment or something like that. Um, that's the, the wrong way for large data sets to be created and sent as compared to how they've been handled historically, where it's, you know, a straw up to the end user and a big pipe that distributes to hundreds or thousands of straws from the center out. Um, and so it seems like we're building what you describe um, in order to solve, uh, you know, bandwidth challenges, pricing challenges, um, even to some degree, sustainability challenges by dealing with that stuff right at the edge. Yeah. If, if you've ever tried to upload a large video file from your, your desktop versus uploading a large video file from your iPhone, you know, one that's 5G or, or greater, and yep. you'll notice a, a massive difference, right? You, you can, for some reason on my phone, I can upload that file in seconds. And in, on my, on my computer, it's, it's taking minutes, which isn't bad. Yep. But still, why is my phone, you know, a hundred times faster than my desktop? I think you, you hit the, uh, the, the nail on the head. And the reason is, you know, the, the 5G infrastructure was, was, you know, as you point out, more duplexed right. than the infrastructure that a lot of the ISPs created, which was like, oh, People just want to consume. They don't want to create. Who, who's going to create anything? Which is, you know, pretty, pretty crazy in itself. Or, or maybe there's a giant conspiracy and they did it on purpose. I have no yeah. idea, but it's, it's an, it's an odd, it, it's, it's odd that the, the two work so differently from one another. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, I mean, I've talked to a couple of different, uh, and, and, you know, many, many people that are building edge for their companies right now are still holding it fairly close to the vest because, they see it as a uh, um, differentiating and, and uh, you know, advantage for them in the market. Um, but what they're finding is that they're creating so much more data at the edge than they originally thought that um, regardless of whether they wanted to have central infrastructure to manage what happened at the edge, they can't. Because unlike a campus, when you and I used to work on regular campuses, like the Cisco campus in, in Santa Clara, or the HP campus in Cupertino or San Jose, there were thousands of people and their functions in one place. You could bring a lot of network to that location and you could duplicate or triplicate that network in order to provide redundancy and additional capacity and all of a sudden you can't do that to an individual's home. You can't do that to their phone. You can't do that to their car necessarily. Um, so these, these companies that are finding that 
they're creating way more data than they originally thought um, where the compute, where the activity is actually happening are finding that um, uh, edge is really their only answer. They can't, they can't centralize it. It's not cost effective, even if they wanted to. So yeah. um, we've, we've sort of, um, you know, crushed that topic, but what do you, from a, from a big cloud perspective, what do you see as, as their next move? I get asked this question a lot. What do you see as their next move in order to try to get to this? Because their economics aren't supported by lots of little locations. Their economics are supported by a fewer number of very large locations. And you're talking about the big, the big cloud providers at this point? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that most people who have built, will build, you know, I, I built, a war pool, you know, using Amazon, because that's what you do. It allows you to scale. And then you realize at some point, it's like, oh my God, I'm now, you know, suffering through a massive sort of success penalty, which is a good problem to have. Don't get me wrong. I'd rather have a success penalty than a failure penalty, I guess. But, but, um, you know, the, the reality is at some point, you know, the idea of having your users be the central sort of nodes in your network becomes an, an interesting thought. Maybe it's just me because I'm always looking at decentralization. But and and I think that when you when you start looking at, you know, when you when when you're working in the blockchain space, each user takes on a different sort of value and role in in that network. And for me, as someone that's sort of architecting a, a blockchain based application, I'm always looking at ways to leverage those users to do things of value within the context of my, of my ecosystem, you know, beyond just, again, being a Bitcoin miner. And I think that I'm, I might be an early adopter and I might have a tendency to look at the world differently than most, but what I have determined is that those things generally become more, you know, adopted, you know, regardless, it just because it becomes fairly self-evident at some point. So the real question I, I, I will pose in is at what point do, do companies, you know, these cloud companies start realizing that they're, they, they're going to have to decentralize some of their components and they're, the users, the, are, are an integral part of the architecture. And you, as you say, the edge, whatever you want to call it, the, those folks that are closest to the end user. And there is no, there, there is no sort of distinction between a central cloud and every, and the rest of the cloud that exists everywhere. Yeah, and so it's, I, if I'm following you um, uh, properly, this goes back to an argument that I had with someone, not, not a negative argument, but a, you know, a, a discussion I had with someone um, about uh, modern day infrastructure owners, right? And we have uh, in uh, several different categories of a very, very large scale infrastructure owners, whether it's the actual data center itself or whether it's the compute infrastructure uh, which where in which case the data centers aren't necessarily as material. Um, do you see a future? And, and this, I'd love to see where you fall on this because I have a, a pretty strong opinion about it. Do you see a future where someone like an Amazon has to look back in the mirror and go, okay, it doesn't actually make sense for us to continue to build out more and more of this risk heavy infrastructure instead why don't we use what we've built in the way of intelligence, what we've built in the way of management and uh, network and routability um, and security and uh, things like that in order to use that over 
um, almost anyone's infrastructure. You know, I, I don't know if I have an answer specifically to that, but I will, I will say that, you know, inevitably all kingdoms fail and in technology, that rate of, of success and failure seems to be, you know, happening much more quickly, right. you know, and, and if, if you think of the, you know, the tech world in these kind of 20 year increments, you know, we're approaching the end of this current 20 year increment, the cloud era, if you will. Right. And the question really is what comes after. And I don't think it's a, it's a centralized, you know, cloud like we've seen over the last 10, 20, you know, 15 years. It's going to be something else. My, my hunch is it's something that looks more like Ethereum or EVM sort of blockchain world, but who knows? But it, it's, it could be some hybrid of something else. But I think that at some point, Amazon's going to get too big, too established. They will become the IBM and something else will, you know, supplement them to something new. I don't know. That's all I can say. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just, you know, go, even going beyond what you and I have just said about this topic, uh, even if you take kind of the simplest view of this problem space, uh, you go back to a blog I wrote in October of 2017. I think it's still on my LinkedIn page. And I made some estimates about um, the, the growth of the industry. And at the time I said, by 2022, um, our global cloud infrastructure will be somewhere in the neighborhood of the equivalent of at the time. 400 million servers. And, um, uh, and I, and I said, and yet we would still be in 2022, we would still be less than 20%, somewhere around 17% of traditional infrastructure oriented workloads from enterprise, et cetera, would be in public cloud. And yet that, and, and that scale seems to be pretty close. My estimates seem to be pretty close. Um, I think that's more luck than anything else. But what's frightening is, you know, we've gone from 300 plus um, hyperscale facilities belonging to the primary cloud providers to now well over 600. And you've got companies like Facebook and Microsoft and others saying they're still going to be building 50 to 100 a year. And, you know, to your point, to what we were just discussing, how long is that tenable? Well, those companies are lagging indicators. Right. They're, they're not going to be the first. They're going to be the last, you know, to do things. So you, to your point, you know, this current iteration of monolithic data center creation isn't going away anytime soon. Now it, you know, as an evolutionary step, you know, I don't know how long that, that'll last. You know, is that a 20 year horizon? Who knows? It's probably, it's probably significant, but the other thing to keep in mind here is, you know, what's the refresh cycle on these data centers as well. And, you know, and, and a lot of these, you know, enterprises are disappearing at a a very rapid pace because of their lack of innovation. The, the world belongs to the software, you know, and, 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 you know, who, who was it said the software eating the world? Well, they're, what they're really doing is eating, you know, companies that never evolved to become tech companies. So, you know, that, that's only happening more quickly. So you look, look at all these startups popping up that basically just pick some antiquated business and create a SaaS model out of it. Right. So right. that's, that's essentially how 99% of startups start these days, right? They just look at something that's, you know, some big company who failed to innovate anyway. So it's interesting. I I really appreciate this conversation. It's kind of like a conversation. We kind of looking back at some of the stuff I used to do. 
Um, I, I, I know we're running a little long, so I want to, you know, just thank, thank you for your time today. This has been a, a really in, insightful conversation. And, you know, it, for any, we're, we're sort of breaking the, the, this podcast in the two. You're doing it on your Edgevana podcast. I'm doing it on my Fungibility podcast. So if, for any of my listeners, where can they learn more about you? Yeah, uh, I mean, edgevana.com is a good place to go. Uh, and we have a, a whole slew of uh, over two dozen previous podcasts where you can get an idea of some of the subjects that um, we are interested in. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're realistically, we're attempting to cloudify access to global resources um, to, to simplify people's journey to um, distributing compute along their supply chain or, or deploying, um, you know, uh, greater access and greater adoption for their blockchain or deploying edge computing in 100 countries or, in a, you know, in 1,000 data centers. Um, and I'm pretty certain based on uh, the conversations we're having these days that, that my listeners wouldn't mind hearing a brief blurb from you as well about what you're working on and, and how that might affect their futures. Well, we certainly didn't spend a lot of time introducing ourselves, but, you know, I, I, I'm Roof, uh, founder of Award Pool, and I'm also the host of the Fungibility Podcast, one of the only uh, NFT-focused podcasts that's actually delivered as an NFT, amazing as that may sound. We've, uh, I think we've done about 15, 16,000 NFTs at this point. I think I saw on my Google Analytics account, we've surpassed 200,000 visitors. Um, so it's been amazing. That's basically been our first month. Um, so if you want to learn more about us, fungibility.co. We're OX Fungibility on Twitter. And I'm R-U-V on Twitter, which is really easy to find. Awesome. And, and I'm MTLE10 on Twitter. And uh, certainly on uh, Mark Teeley, you can find uh, some of my musings on LinkedIn as well. But uh, Ruth, this has been fun. It's been, it was way too long uh, between the last time we talked and this one. I'm glad we managed to catch up. Uh, and this was kind of uh, fun and, and scary at the same time, trying to do two podcasts in one show. But I liked it. No, it's great. I, I really appreciate the conversation. I'm sure I, I don't always get to have these sort of, you know, total geek out cloud combos. So it's good. It's kind of, you know, I've been so focused on the on the NFT space. This is, uh, as you can tell, a, a great conversation. Absolutely. No, I learned a lot. I appreciate you taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, and until next time. Until next time. Thank you.